I'd walk into a shop and be like, here we go again. <sighs> Save them Bitcoin. And they'd be like, no, we don't accept Bitcoin. I was like, oh, but you've got a Chivo sign up or, you know, you've got, um, or you, you personally have a Chivo wallet. And sometimes they would lie and be like, no, we don't have a Bitcoin wallet here. Or sometimes they'd just say, oh, I, I downloaded Chivo. I took the $30 off in October last year and then I stopped using it since then. I want to become a specialist in an area. And I feel like Bitcoin is that area that will outlive us. And, you know, I'll, you know, I'll be here in 100 years. Like when I was living in the Ivory Coast, um, like the first couple of times I paid a bribe on the way to work because I, I basically got pulled over um, every day that I went into the office. If you'd asked me this a few years ago, I would have talked about some government or some uh, like embedded sort of corruption within a country or a society or something. But now, because I've learned about Bitcoin and money and all that sort of thing, I'd say one of the biggest corruptions is Joe Hall is a research and interview journalist for one of the biggest crypto media companies in the world, Cointelegraph. He travels all around the world interviewing, researching and educating people on Bitcoin and he documents this process online. In this episode, we dig into his time in El Salvador and whether or not he thinks their move to adopt Bitcoin has in fact helped the country or whether it's made things worse. We also dig into which country he's fairly confident will adopt Bitcoin as legal tender next, given his on the grounds research. And we touch on why dark mode on Bitcoin Lightning wallets could in fact be holding back Bitcoin adoption. All right, hey Joe, how's it going? Hello Tats, I'm, I'm good thanks. And uh, yeah, just to explain why I'm wearing an oven glove. Uh, <laughs> sorry, we are joking about this before before we came on air, but basically I'm, I'm in a relatively new flat and I uh, my, my coffee went cold earlier because I forgot about it. So I put it in the microwave for a bit, but um, the handle got really hot, then if you can see. So in order to drink it- looks it, lovely. I've got to wear an, an oven glove. <laughs> also, how much how much coffee are you drinking? What time is it for you at the moment? Uh, it's 3.30, I'm, I'm in Lisbon, so it's the same time zone. Oh, it's the same. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, nice. another reason to love Portugal, you know, it's same time zone, good weather. I'm in a t-shirt. I mean, you're also in a t-shirt, that's probably because you've got heating. It's, it's actually not. So I'm in a, well, I'm in a t-shirt because we recently moved in the sauna onto the farm where the event will be held. Um, <laughs> and so me and Dylan decided to go for a, a work break after lunch <laughs> and uh, hopped in the sauna for a bit um, to test it out and then relax myself down, put me in a, a lovely mental state to come and talk to you. So I'm yeah. still quite, I'm still, I've still, still got a lot of heat in me from then. Wow. Okay. Are you doing like Wim Hof stuff? So you're doing saunering and then running in the, is it, it must be like one degrees today or something in the UK, no? Uh, something like that. Yeah. It'd be usually, well, it'd be nice if there was a cold dip. Um, they did have showers, but the only mode was absolutely boiling. So I couldn't actually get in. So managed to get under briefly in the cold little bit beforehand. Um, but yeah, still, so that's why I'm still in a t-shirt because I'm still, still boiling. Still steaming. Maybe get yourself an oven glove, you know. Yeah, no, I need a whole oven glove. <laughs> All right, Joe, I'm going to, I'm going to dive straight in. So you and your background, you spent a lot of time in journalism and emerging countries and quite often in the corporate world. And it seems that you've seen a lot of corruption in a lot of these areas. And so I was wondering if you could kind of just give me an overview of the main, the main forms or the biggest forms of corruption you've seen. Um, and then after that, I'm going to lead kind of a little bit on to like, you always hear like Bitcoin fixes this. So then like, <laughs> what is it that Bitcoin can actually fix and how much of it is just a part of human nature? 
Okay. Um, wow, that is a big question to start off with, mate. What's the biggest corruption you've ever seen? I mean, inevitably... You know, <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> the, the, the biggest corruption... If you'd asked me this a few years ago, I would have talked about some government or some uh, like embedded sort of corruption within a country or a society or something. But now, because I've learned about Bitcoin and money and all that sort of thing, I'd say one of the biggest corruptions is fiat money. But you didn't see that yeah. coming. Um, but in Classic. terms of, yeah, I mean, but because, you know, fiat is this promise that um, our money is redeemable for a certain amount. It's a credit and it comes with it, this uh, corrupt system in which certain people are able to advantage themselves um, at the pest of others. And, you know, that's what Bitcoin fixes, doesn't it? Um, but in mm. terms of like what I've seen around the world, I mean, the poorer the country, this, I'm going to talk in complete stereotypes and generalizations here. So trigger warning to any people that are like, oh, my God, how dare you? Um, and I've, I've lived in lots of very poor countries and spent a lot of time there. So my way of framing things is a bit like lazy at times. So I won't be talking in like, you know, super woke uh, Radio 4 ready uh, English, just as like a primer. <laughs> You're excused. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Um, uh, but yeah, like, you know, the, the poorer the country generally, the more sort of entrenched the corruption is to the point that it's um, like socially acceptable forms of corruption. Like when I was living in the Ivory Coast, um, like the first couple of times I paid a bribe on the way to work because I, I basically got pulled over um, every day that I went into the office. We lived in like a expatty sort of area and we go into Abidjan, mm. the capital, and uh, a policeman took a shining to me and was like, yeah, you know, where are you going today, monsieur? Like, give me more cafe today. And I was like, I'm not paying you. That's corruption. I don't have to pay you to, to go to work. And, you know, the locals we were with and the people that had been in Abidjan before me they were like, nah, mate, you've just got to pay this little bribe every day to get to work. And that's just how it is. And I was like, oh, oh. OK. And so within a month, I was expensing, like literally, you know, filing out an expense form uh, for work to pay for my corruption sort of payment to get to work. And it was just a policeman that was sat there every morning. He saw this white guy in a, in a shirt and a tie going to work and thought, yeah, okay, that's my little euros worth of, um, it was like uh, mille francs, which is like 80 cents um, of the CFA, the, the local currency there. Um, and it was just, you know, it was just, was expected and anticipated and that was it. And I mean, had similar things in Mexico City where, mm. uh, I mean, Mexico is quite a corrupt, uh, you know, institutions are quite corrupt. It's quite normal just to pay your way about, out of situations. Like there's lots of little things like uh, we got caught once riding without a seatbelt on, which obviously is a stupid thing to do anyway. But we were also quite boozed. God, I hope my parents don't listen to this. Um, that, that makes it better then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> but again, that's one of those things that you take for granted. And I forgot that as well. Like I was in Senegal two weeks ago. And, you know, in the UK, the idea of getting into a car with a drunk friend would be like, what are you doing? Like, how dare you yeah. sort of thing. It's yeah, like, there's a brief period maybe when you've kind of passed, there's a little gray, oh, you're kind of all Id idiots. But yeah, as, as you, you're like, what are you, what are you actually doing, mate? Like you, you kind of play it safe. Like you're, just, you're risking your own life or someone else's basically. Yeah, and you can almost sort of picture these headlines um, after and also just like you, you get socially shamed as well. I don't know, it's equivalent mm. to like blowing out, you know, a cigarette in someone's face or something. It's like, what are you doing? Like, that's just generally socially unacceptable now. And I just find that, you know, those rules change because like our parents, our parents' generation, they would have um, drunk and drive as if it was, you know, nothing. And I know that a lot of um, yeah. country types still do drink a couple of pints and then drive home from the pub or whatever. The point is, I'm just trying to frame the, this story before I get to it. Um, in Senegal a couple of weeks ago, we went out for a few drinks after the Bitcoin conference there. 
And, you know, before we know it, we're drinking like uh, these rum punch things and like going out to like another club, then another club. And the whole way there, we were driving with our friend who was one of the speakers at the conference, who I won't mention his name. And obviously he's smashed, you know, he's had four drinks at the first bar and then a couple of drinks in the next one. And it was just driving as if it was nothing. And um, I reflected on the the day after I was like, wow, I, you know, I just got in the car there as if it was nothing because Mm. I'm in Senegal. Whereas if that was in, you know, Yorkshire where I'm from, I would have been, I would never have got into that car. So it's really funny how your perspective on these things also changes, but it's also a level of corruption, right? And Mm. also just to put a a sort of sum up that story, the, uh, we got pulled over on the way back from the club at like 3 a.m. And it was by a Senegalese police officer. And Senegal isn't as um, as sort of corrupt as other sub-Saharan uh, countries with uh, sort of people in power or people in uniforms. But I was like, oh, he probably just wants, you know, a bit of money because he's stopped us and he's seen a couple of foreigners in a car on the way back from a club. And he didn't ask for any bribe or anything. And he just asked for the guy's papers and it was a rental car. And I was like, it's so weird that he just randomly pulled us over when no one else was pulled over and he didn't ask for a bribe thing. Like, what was he actually checking? And then when we parked up at the hotel, we realized that the front bumper of the car was just hanging off. Because <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> basically when we parked up at the, the last club, it was a beach club. And um, for some reason, the driver really wanted to park on the beach, like literally on the Your sand. driver now, your driver. Yeah, yeah, isn't the, the guy that was, he was actually the speaker at the conference. Yeah. Um, and he was like, yeah, no, I really want to drive uh, and literally park on the beach. And, you know, when someone just has that idea in their head, they're just going to do it. Like, there's a car park mm. next to the um, club, which isn't paved or anything. It's just like you sort of dusty gravel track. And then there's the actual beach. And he drove over some rocks to get there. When I say rocks, I mean like sort of giant sort of flat boulder slabs. And at some point during this maneuver, he must have lost a front bumper. So that was the reason why, I guess, this policeman pulled us over. For God's sake. Yeah. That reminds me of the scene in Wolf of Wall Street when he's like, yeah. it's after like the Steve Madden phone call. He's like, Steve Madden. And he yeah. like crawls his way back into the car and he gets back and he's like, ah, oh, thank God I like drove home without hitting anything. Oh <laughs> up the next day. The like, entire street has just been smashed by his car. <laughs> and he's just got like this pile of metal that he's been driving in. Oh my god! I need to send this to Paco. You know, Paco de la India, run with Bitcoin. Yeah, 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 run with Paco. Yeah, because we were um, joking about it the next morning. That's basically what happened. Like, you know, he'd hit all these things, and we had no idea because at least we hadn't taken a load of quaaludes, you know. But we were, yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> so don't drink, drink, drive, kids. Um, <laughs> sorry, um, do, you want, do you want more serious answers to that question as well about? Um... Um, well, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess. So I guess this is kind of like base layer, base layer corruption that I guess a lot of people can kind of already imagine or see like that's, it's all fairly, I guess, as you say, not the stereotype, but believable. Mm -hmm. Um, And it kind of, that also doesn't necessarily feel that it's anything that say Bitcoin would fix. It's kind Mm -hmm. of just like in a, in a place where there's not as many rules, laws, and maybe slightly poorer um, that these kind of legal systems, I guess, haven't really been built up and like the social norms to follow them as much. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess like, what are some kind of forms of corruption that you've seen that most people may not have really thought of um, mm-hmm. or that are harder to see? Okay. Uh, I guess it's those situations where it gets um, higher and higher up. I mean, we saw it recently with, um, what's the name, the Greek uh, 
MEP uh, who was done for corruption, or she's allegedly done for um, a corruption scandal with FIFA. She had bags of money from Qatar at her home. Um, you know, like we're used to seeing that sort of thing, right? Where we just assume mm. naturally that, you know, bankers are paying off certain groups or that institutions might have a few sort of dodgy people in them who are looking to exploit their power. Like, I think we'd like to assume that most people are generally quite good, but there's always going to be a, a couple of you know bad apples in the mix. But I mean, yeah. in Mexico City, um, my ex-girlfriend there, her dad was a chef at a restaurant and he was he'd opened up two restaurants and was looking to open a third. And he wanted to sell alcohol and, you know, had to get his liquor license to do it. And the usual way you get a liquor license in Mexico City is you uh, apply to like the local council. They come around, you pay the small fee and then you also pay him the bribery fee, which is just, you know, an unspoken sort of truth. He uh, he did this, but he was so fed up of all the little sort of shows of corruption in Mexico City and around Mexico that he was like, no, no, I'm not going to pay the bribery fee. I'm going to take this to the highest level and to make sure that I mm -hmm. have to do this by the book this time because I'm fed up of paying these little um, fees for things that are just, you know, people taking the cream off the top for themselves. And so he went from the local council to like this, uh, like Mexico is like 20, Mexico City is like 27 million people. It's like a massive city. So he went from like his small it's council yeah, to like a slightly larger area and eventually to Mexico City, and then eventually to, because every time the minister or this official came around, they wanted the uh, bribe, and he was like, no. And so he went to the <laughs> superior, and the superior. And so two years later, literally, he's, he's been trying to get this liquor license for two years. So his restaurant in Mexico City is not serving alcohol, but it is serving, you know, tacos and um, chapulines mm. and everything else. It's not um, serving alcohol. So he's made a, a loss because of his scruples and because he wants to stand up his principles. And he gets higher and higher and higher until eventually he's basically with the minister for food and beverages in Mexico, like the national minister. <laughs> and so he, he gets to the office and he gets invited in and he's a bit nervous and a bit sort of shaken up by it because it's quite intimidating when you go to these governmental buildings, and there's lots of security and you know, mm. they, they search you on the and way. And all he wants is a, is a liquor license. Yeah, for actually a really bloody good um, restaurant it's called Las Polas, if you're ever in uh, Mexico City. There's now four of them. Noted. Um, shout out. Um, but um, uh, yeah, he gets in there and um, he uh, he explains the whole story of why he's there and the reason why he wanted to you know bring it up with the minister. And the minister's like, gosh, that is you know really heartwarming stuff, and I'm really sorry that the, the state of the country is like that. And like eventually puts the contract in front of him and says, yeah, but, you know, sign here. And you know he lets out this big big sigh of relief. He's like, great, finally get my liquor con contract. And then the minister's like. Mm -mm -mm. And then also be the 250 for me. <laughs> and it's like, what? Like, nobody is made up the chain. And it's one of those things that it's really hard to visualize if you haven't grown up in that sort of society, because you don't realize that even the state, when it's mandating salaries for these people, it knows that they will get a certain amount of money from corruption or from bribes anyway. So why do you need to give them a pay rise, for example? You know, like, mm. you know, they say we've got the nurses strike at the moment or the train strikes at the moment in the UK. The government budget would budget for, you know, train drivers next year, like normal amount of salary. And, oh, should we put it up, uh, you know, five or 10 percent to match inflation this year? Well, they've actually taken quite a few bribes, as we can see from, you know, this guy buying new cars, this guy getting a new house, whatever it is. So maybe we don't need to factor it in. Um, so, yeah, it's a... It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, there's basically you've got corruption on every single level of power there pretty much and so no matter how much you want to do good as a small individual business owner there's not really there's not really any way you can i mean is this something that you see 
like that feels like it's almost so entrenched that to think of that not being there almost seems unimaginable. I mean, there's certain levels of corruption here as well. And and I guess like certain things which are so system based, mm. kind of like the police system, and then we can kind of delve into like the fiat system as well. They almost feel so in so entrenched that it's like, how does this? Yeah, like how does that ever even change? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's almost like you know. Do we need that generation that's grown up with that amount of corruption to effectively die out? To be because it's really hard to change human behaviors, right? Even, mm. I mean, when I think about my parents' approach to technologies and things, they've, they've still been around an iPhone for ten years now, but they struggle to do a screenshot or a screen record. So. Yeah. How can we realistically change someone's behavior when they've been around for 60, 70, 80 years um, with regards to corruption? You know, they're just used to it and it's, it's become like a reflex almost. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I think that, yeah, to some extent, those systems won't ever be, oh, or unless you change rule of law, right? I mean, we, we're seeing mm. that with places like El Salvador. Actually, that's quite a good counter argument. You know, he's, Nayib Bukele's cleaned up um, gangs in, within a year. And I guess one of the things within that is corruption, right? Because, you know, gangs are also an example of corruption because of their um, ability to create rackets and, you know, uh, extort people of money. Um, so maybe there is a way out of these systems too, but it requires a huge response because, you know, you need mm. to know that your actions will be punished if you, say, break the law. I mean, we saw it with Singapore as well, didn't we? So I guess there are, you know, little pockets of... Um, I don't know if progress is the right word because lots of people have a lot of issue with these approaches to um, to change, don't they? You know, mm. like Bukele has been absolutely murdered in the mainstream media because um, he's effectively locked up people without due course or due recourse. But I, but when you see the situation on the ground and you realise how desperate things are, you really start to understand why these things have happened. And I'm not like some authoritarian, you know, dictator supporter or whatever. And I don't, you know, think that Bukele is the, the best, you know, this messiah that everyone's making him out to be. But when you see the results and you speak to people, like recently I spent um, like a couple of hours on the streets of El Salvador just chatting to people, being like, you know, if you could sum up the environment in El Salvador, what now, like, what would you say? And like about 39 people out of the 40 I spoke to said words like peace or um, happiness or hope. Or, and I was just like, wow, like, can you imagine asking people in the streets of the UK how they'd sum up the, the atmosphere right now in the UK? Tragic. <laughs> yeah. Tragic. <laughs> it would be just abominable, wouldn't it? It would make for good content. But uh, it was, and I, I, I'd never been in, well, I've been in lots of countries where there is this sort of sense of hope about the future. But in El Salvador, it felt quite tangible and quite, um, and it was quite moving. And even when I asked them about, um, actually, one person did say crime, which I thought was quite interesting. I'm actually going to upload this video in the next day or two. Um, but, uh, and the other thing was, yeah, um, I asked them their opinion of Bukele as well, and no one had a bad thing to say about him. They're all like, you know, this is the most amazing leader. And again, when you contrast to that, to our experience in like Europe or America or wherever it is in the West, how do we view our leaders right now? Like, we view them as like, these annoying pests that no one. Yeah. We throw them out every few weeks and try and find a new one. Yeah. And, and there's no accountability with them either is because, you know, mm. they, they get away with murder. Because that's our corruption, isn't it? Like, you know, Boris Johnson can throw parties during his um, uh, premiership and not be you know, punished for it. Or, you know, they can give out NHS contracts to, to people, which clearly are corrupt contracts, and they can also mm. get away with it. So, yeah, it's, uh, 
I guess that's one way of, of, of improving the situation. Um, but mm. I, I'm not one of those guys that subscribes to the Bitcoin fixes everything camp. Um, although, and I like to tease that sometimes on Twitter, I'll put up tweets like, you know, <laughs> I just crashed into a car on the way to work. Bitcoin doesn't fix Bitcoin this. Fixes this. <laughs> or like Bitcoin doesn't fix this. And some smart ass <laughs> every time will be like, actually, had you not been rushing because you'd lowered your time preference because, you know, you realize that you're <laughs> going to be on the show for 80 years, then you'd go, you know, Bitcoin does fix this. And, <laughs> That's uh, quite funny. Yeah. Literally every time. Like, one last week was like um, Atlantic storms have knocked out electricity in my street or something. Yeah. Um, Bitcoin doesn't fix this. And they're like, actually, in the future, there'll be nuclear reactors in every house. So Bitcoin does fix this. And I was like, mate. <laughs> Have a laugh. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but it, it's Twitter, though, isn't it? It's, uh, it's the medium of the message. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I want to kind of come back to Naive a little bit then. Because, I mean, with Naib, it's he's an interesting... Well, and El Salvador as a whole is an interesting topic because mm. everything is either like oh, El Salvador adopted Bitcoin, GDP is up like X amount, all this, all that. Like, it's like super, super good. And then on the other hand, they're like, Shiva wallet is like awful. It's like, everyone uses it. It's kind of like all this kind of stuff. And then you also get like around Naib as well. Like he's like, I, I admire aspects about him, but then I don't know the recent thing, like, oh, he's extending like his, the amount of time he can stay in power or like these little things. And I kind of, yeah, what are your kind of, views on that and what do you think people are getting wrong and people are getting right because i mean you've obviously been there um mm. good question it's a weird one right because mm. like i mean you're you you care about bitcoin and the future of bitcoin right so yeah so because it's the first country that's adopted bitcoin i want to see them succeed you know i'm cheering them on but I also believe in the truth. And I feel like if we don't tell the truth about the matter, then we'll get ourselves into really deep, um, deep water. And there's also a lot of learning that we can do from El Salvador's experience because inevitably other countries will adopt Bitcoin. I mean, there's going to be what, four countries next year that adopt Bitcoin. I mean, we should mm. start putting bets, to be honest. It's going to be quite an interesting, uh, uh, you know, Bitcoin country casino. Uh, oh, Bitcoin country bingo. That should, that should be on some betting sites. <laughs> start that. My money's on Mali, by the way. Mali and then Tonga. Sorry, not Tonga. Mali, um, did I say Tonga? Don't I mean Tonga? Yeah, I do mean Tonga. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'll ask you why that is afterwards, but okay. I'll let you carry on with this um, one now. Yeah, so the uh, Bukele thing. Yeah, so there's the Max and Max Kaiser and Stacey um, Herbert camp, which is this country is infallible. We must do everything we can to support it. And they are the gatekeepers of El Salvador. You know, they are completely hell bent on making sure, you know, shitcoin people, shitcoin companies don't get set a foot in El Salvador. And they're doing everything they can to make it the sort of Bitcoin citadel country. Uh, so that you know bitcoin is more the world all over the world come there invest you know spend money and you know let the sats flow in this country and then there's the other end of the spectrum which is uh you know your bloomberg's and your uh the guardian which say bitcoin's price has gone down 70 percent over the past year therefore el salvador people are even poorer than they started and obviously that's just you know not correct reporting so it's actually really hard to find the truth of el salvador and also the truth knowing that okay what is El Salvador? I've never even been to this country before. I've, you know, I've lived a little bit in Latin America, but every one mm. of these countries has their own sort of histories. And um, yeah, there's a lot going on there that's just you know, beneath the surface. And I, I found it fascinating just learning about um, El Salvador and its treatment in the press. Uh, the fact that um, most of the media in El Salvador is actually controlled by um, this sort of legacy family, 
um, and El Faro is like one of the main voices um, in his lighthouse. And they're the guys that have been sort of slamming Bukele whenever they can, despite the fact that he has, you know, a 90% approval rating. So, you know, most dictators would die for a 90% approval rating, let mm. alone, you know, a, a centrist in some... And that's usually done through the media being in support of them, not against them. Exactly. And I mean, maybe that's also a, a vote um, in favour of social media and the fact that Bukele is a prolific, you know, Twitter and Facebook um, sort of influencer as well within the country. He knows that that's how you get the message across to people because, you know, most Salvadorians have a, a smartphone and they're on social media in some shape or, or form. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I went there with this expectation that I'd be able to live off Bitcoin, that everyone would understand Bitcoin and that, you know, spending Bitcoin at McDonald's to pupusa places, to surf rentals, to car hires would be um, straightforward. And the reality was it was really, really hard, and really quite tiring. I mean, I was traveling with Sophie, my, my partner, and um, when we once we left El Salvador, she was like, God, I'm so glad we're not there anymore. And I was like, why? It's like, you're so stressed trying to spend Bitcoin wherever you went. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit. I didn't, I didn't really, and she was like, you generally were like, because I'd walk into a shop and be like, here we go again. I said, then Bitcoin. And they'd be like, no, we don't accept Bitcoin. I was like, oh, but you've got a Chivo sign up or, you know, you've got, mm-hmm. um, or you, you personally have a Chivo wallet. And sometimes they would lie and be like, no, we don't have a Bitcoin wallet here, or sometimes they'll just say, oh, I, I downloaded Chivo, I took the $30 off in October last year, and then I stopped using it since then. And I would do like the fake thing of being like, oh, I'm going to walk out your shop then, I'm not going to spend my Bitcoin here. And <laughs> dropping, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I'd learned I'd this from Ricky, who's um, an Italian. Have you, do you know Laura and Ricky? They've got like a Bitcoin, Bitcoin podcast. Um, he used to work as a human rights activist, like around um, Africa. And mm. he's a guy that does not give a, uh, I can swear on this, like, he, he does not give a fuck. Um, and uh, can I swear on this? <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> you can now. Sorry. Um, <laughs> whoops. Um, yeah, does, does not care. And uh, he's, you know, a little bit older and he's been writing really like hard hitting articles uh, for people like Bitcoin Magazine as well as his own platforms. And he said to me that, you know, when he first went to El Salvador, like two months after the Bitcoin law, he spent a lot of time sort of educating people about accepting Bitcoin and they were quite happy to hear from him. And then mm. this time around, you know, sort of autumn time this year, a lot of people have lost interest or they're just not as phased as they used to be. And large part of that is, of course, because the price is a lot lower. Um, but also it's because there's been a real failing uh, from insert whoever you want to blame here. Um regarding education like there's no financial education there's no math education of course there's no bitcoin education and you can't really get to a bitcoin education without being able to you know have a basic understanding of maths um, and from then you know financial education i mean if people aren't saving money then how are they going to know to save satoshis you know it's there's Mm. a big leap to get there and a lot of people i think just assumed and myself included that uh el salvadorians would suddenly suddenly be like you know a little bit orange pilled before we got there but I was actually explaining to people how to use Bitcoin, why I use Bitcoin, and then, you know, tipping them handsomely in Bitcoin. And nine times out of 10, and I've actually recorded a lot of these reactions, people are like, thank you so much for taking the time to explain to me how this all works. And I was like, well, of course, like, it's, it's the smallest thing. And they'd be like, you're the first person who's ever just like sat me down and had a five minute chat about like the Lightning Network or about, you know, why base chain takes roughly 10 minutes or, or whatever it is, like some... Um, 
not even like a deep level understanding of Bitcoin. You know, we're not going to Merkle trees or, you know, uh, more like how to drive a car, basically, instead of knowing how to, uh, how the engine works, how many pistons it's got. It's just like, where's the accelerator? Where's the brake? Where's the steering wheel? What do I do with it? Kind of thing. This is this is a great um, metaphor or allegory, whatever it is. Um, and I will use that and steal it because um, a lot of people just to continue on with that idea. A mm. lot of people will want to know how an internal combustion engine works and will want to know wh why the electrics and the windows don't work if you're in like high winds or something whereas most people just want to turn the car on and drive fast or you know mm. drive from a to b and that's kind of what you see in the bitcoin world isn't it and some people are there being like but is there even a car at all is it all just an illusion <laughs> is the car just a, a useful abstraction from our realities or you know they'll be like the real like you know well you can't sit in it and you can't drive it but you can use it <laughs> there you go you know it's uh... Um, but yeah, I'm just making a dig at all those sort of, um, you know, these sort of intellectual masturbation podcasts that you get a lot of in Bitcoin. Mm. Like, Isn't this a useful? You get thing? quite philosophical. Yeah, I'm, I'm just being cheeky. Um, <laughs> but yeah, if, and if, if anyone's listening and they're considering going to El Salvador, just bloody do it. Just go. I've never been in a country where I've been so warmly welcomed by people. Literally had people walk up to me on the street, shake my hand, and say, "Is that just because your hair, though?" <laughs> I don't know. I'll take it. Um, no, I mean, well, no, it can't have been that. <laughs> I was entertaining the idea. Um, the um, yeah, people literally would shake my hand on the street and be like, "Thank you for coming to my country." And for them, really, yeah, and wow, not nothing to do with Bitcoin, purely just because they like to see tourism. Yeah, and you know, I stick out like a sore thumb in lots of Latin American countries, and a lot of time I was with, with Sophie, and she's quite blonde, so like looks very foreign. And um, mm. so like when we were up around the sort of Santa Ana, around the sort of, it's like uh, El Salvador's second city. Um, it's slightly less touristy, but it's where all the volcanoes are. And it's like a beautiful place for like sunsets and rainbows and, you know, just seeing hiking, that sort of thing. People literally shook my hand and said, you know, bienvenido, like welcome and thank you for visiting. And I was like, are you a tour guide? Are you like the host? What's going on here? And they're just a random person in the street. They're just happy to see tourists because for them, tourists coming to the country a lot of these guys are a bit older as well, like maybe like 40s, 50s. And then maybe it just meant that, okay, like the country's on a good path again. We're, we're seeing tourists, tourists, that means money's coming in. That means our quality of life is improving or has improved. And we are safe again. Because, you know, three or four years ago, it was a, or at least the reports say, it was a gang-stricken uh, country. And a lot of people now feel a lot safer. And it's really hard to put like a price or a value on that level of security that has been won in the past sort of couple of years. I mean, a lot of people were saying like to me uh, when I was walking through the streets for San Salvador, asking them like, what's the vibe like in the, the city? And they're like, I wouldn't let my kids go out when the sun went down. And now we're having this conversation and the, the sun has already set. So I, I know, I, I mean, I'm not very good at empathy anyway, and it's something I really try to work on. But I, like, just imagine putting yourself in those shoes and being, you know, spending three or four years knowing that You've got to get your stuff done in the daytime because nighttime equals danger, equals crime, equals, you know, you can't go out at night, you can't socialize, you can't have parties, you can't do all those things that we all take for granted. And suddenly you're able to do this again. And that, that, how magical is that? Man, I really mm -hmm. wish I'd showed the, uh, the video that, of um, El Salvador before this chat, because um, I, I think I do like try to sum up the vibe a little bit. But there's one conversation I'm having with this old dude and um, he speaks quite good English because um, I tried mm -hmm. to speak English when I could. Uh, just because, you know, a lot of the audience is English. And, uh, like, randomly music started playing at the end of his, like, sentence. 
and like a, a random like live band just popped up and there was people salsa dancing next to me and I was just no like, way. this is so cool. Like, it's just, yeah, so go to El Salvador if you can. Oh, if you have the means, if you're able to, if you're able to get the time off work, all those sort of things. But yeah, if you can, mm. do it. That sounds amazing. So I guess it's almost like the difference between war and peace, basically. I mean, war, you can't really go outside. It might be not necessarily a war with another country, but a war within with itself kind of thing. And then to kind of have that gone, you have this, yeah, I guess you have this time of peace and you're just happy to see things working again, people actually wanting to come. And yeah, it must be amazing seeing your kids or being able to be happy to have your kids go outside again mm. and not worry about that. Yeah, it's mad. And, uh, you know, I've not really experienced that in a place. I've not been to places that have, you know, come out of a war. Maybe it's like being in a, you know, a Mali or something. Not yet. Or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how the next 10 years play out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if if Bitcoin moons or when Bitcoin moons, you know, he'll be hailed as the, the brightest person in the world. And actually, Mike Peterson, the founder of um, Bitcoin Beach, um, I was like, you know, what happens if, uh, will the media ever change its tune regarding El Salvador? Because you, you literally cannot find a positive mainstream media article about El Salvador, which is kind mm. of crazy when you think about it. I'm not getting conspiratorial or anything. I'm just saying, you know, the atmosphere on the ground is completely different to what you read in the, the press. And I mean, Sophie's parents were reluctant to let her go there. And we lied for the first bit and said that we we're in LA in, in California rather than going to El Salvador. Wow. And then, and then like sent a picture from Bitcoin beach being like, Oh, we, we came. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, getting abducted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I slipped and now I'm, I'm now I'm kidnapped. <laughs> uh, um, but oh shit, what was my point? I don't. I don't think you're getting conspiratorial. Conspiratorial. Con. <laughs> constipated. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> constipated I mean, theorists. <laughs> yeah, constipated theorists. Because then this <laughs> this is one of the things that you kind of realize when you look more into a specific subject. Um, let's Bitcoin for this example is that you do kind of realize the narrative mm-hmm. with the mainstream media and kind of what the general population believes and are told compared to like what's actually going on, like the disparity is huge. And it does make you think if, if that's the disparity between this thing and I can see it's so large mm-hmm. and it's only because I understand it, how many other things are there which are also also have this huge discrepancy purely because you don't really actually understand it. So you kind of just take all these headlines at face value. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, no, it's a, it's a, a valid idea. And I mean, so then TLDR basically good, bad, good and bad but the kind of the feel in el salvador is actually amazing and yeah it has made a huge difference oh yeah i mean i i was trying to load this question when i asked people um because i wanted the i think the gist of what's going on in el salvador is there's a bukele revolution it's not like a bitcoin revolution and so i asked everyone like i just asked random people as well as sort of more informed uh like there's a lot of hang on let me try again um, basically, I think there's either a Bitcoin or there's a Bukele revolution taking place in El Salvador. And so I asked people on the street this question. And I also asked people that were sort of had uh, established or like respected um, jobs in government or like business owners, that sort of thing. And in El Salvador, in El Salvador. Yeah, because I was filming a documentary while I was there as well, which will probably come out in like March or something. But um, look forward to it. Yeah, well, we'll see, because I don't know the first thing about making documentaries, so who knows? I look forward to it even more. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be an absolute shit show, mate. Um, but watch it. Anyway, um, the 
but the funny thing about the uh, sort of higher echelons of society, if I can say that, is that there's actually a lot of people that are returning to El Salvador that, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, they left or they left because their family was persecuted and they effectively became uh, refugees. You know, that the former regime didn't like the father's job. And so the son left and went to Spain or the US or to, uh, to the UK or something to find work there. And now they're realizing that the country's safer, the old regime is out and you can come to El Salvador and you can actually prosper, you can actually find jobs and you can find, um, you know, a valid way of contributing to your, your country and your you know, home, home turf. And I never experienced this sort of phrase before I learned of it, but it's called a brain gain. You know, we've got a brain drain, for example, in the UK at the moment, because lots of our talent is like leaving to go abroad. And in mm. El Salvador, they've got this brain gain or a brain boomerang. You know, there's people coming back to the country because they realize that they can actually build a future for themselves and their families there. So that was really cool to see. But then with regards to this Bukele or Bitcoin revolution, I think obviously Bukele is very clear that he is a Bitcoiner. You know, he really cares about the future of that currency and it's and it's mental to think that he had, he adopted Bitcoin in his country so early on when, let's be honest, Bitcoin isn't a very good medium of exchange because of its you know volatility. You know, one day it's mm. worth 70 grand and the next day it's worth 15 grand. Um, but I think he did that knowing that in tapping into Bitcoin, he would tap into this huge community, he would tap into these wealthy individuals, and he would bring a lot of sort of Western voices to El Salvador, which would be to the benefit of his country. So I think this guy is like a very, very smart guy. And he's not to be underestimated because, yeah, he's he's got this strategy, he's got this game plan, and he's executing it. And yes, Bitcoin is one of the tenets of that philosophy, but it's not like the only one. You know, he's doing lots of other things as well. And it's not like Bitcoin, is, if it was as important as he makes it appear, then why is Chivo so shit? And why is no one actually using it as uh, a means of exchange? Why is that that no one was properly educated about how to use mm. Bitcoin effectively? It's, you know, it's, it's more of a marketing tool, I think, right now. And it's a bloody good one because, I mean, the figures speak for themselves, you know, whether it's tourism or GDP or um I don't know, safety or crime or every metric in El Salvador seems to be doing really, really well. Okay, maybe you can't trust all the figures, but then I went there and I also thought it's it's a, a country that's really experiencing dramatic uh, fundamental change. And that's really cool to see and be part of, like when you're in those places like that, it's, it's fun. Mm, definitely. It's kind of like, I guess the last, call it, let's just say 10 years, 10, 12 years of kind of, Bitcoin growing bigger and bigger, you've kind of got more and more people coming in, more and more money, kind of accumulating, accumulating. It's kind of like building this massive wooden pole. Mm -hmm. And then Bukele just saw that pole and he's like, that would make a really good spear. <laughs> like fashion's like a nice little point, puts it on this pole. And then he can kind of harness this massive pole, the best Bitcoin energy to then drive in money to the country, boost tourism, all this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's cool. <laughs> I preferred your car analogy. I'm gonna have to <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to try again. <laughs> <laughs> Pushing it there a little Ultimate bit. Spear, I think it was the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, just a broom. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's sweeping his sacks. Get rid of the gangs. Yeah, yeah. Um, so moving on, I want to kind of come back to then the two countries that you suspect would be the next to adopt it. Um, you spend a lot of time in these kind of more developing countries, helping educate and those kind of things. So I want to, two questions. First, like what are 
because I, I I'm aware that there's obviously adoption going in. You hear like Nigeria's got X amount of adoption. Like, mm. but what are most people not grasping or not understanding? What is something that might be misunderstood about the adoption in these countries? And then why are you so confident that another country or say even four will adopt it as a as their legal tender next year? Let's go five actually, because I think that once a couple of these dominoes fall in certain regions, the others will quickly follow suit. Um, first point about you know what people misunderstanding about adoption in these countries i mean when we read stuff on twitter or in sort of bitcoin echo chambers it's lauded and you know exalted as oh my god like look at the adoption in africa right now i feel like the past month the buzzword has been like bitcoin in africa and people are Mm. saying like oh you you, everyone's sleeping on bitcoin in africa and it's like well yes there's some fucking cool things happening like uh Fediment, for example i think that is actually a game changer and uh speaking to obi and knowing what i mean he i just i think his his potential he's like a like a, the steve jobs of like the bitcoin world you know i think that he will project or, or catalyze bitcoin to this the stratosphere because of Fediment and the, the way in which it sort of solves the custodying issue and for those that aren't familiar with Fediment, basically the idea is that you Rather than you looking after your Bitcoin keys, your, your private keys yourself, you basically have a load of community, uh, uh, what are they called, F- uh, fellows or leaders or something, community leaders. Yeah, kind of little, little groups, kind of like, yeah. I guess, tr- clans kind of, yeah. you have your like certain clan leaders who are like, yeah, who have, who cannot control it, but you could say, unless I don't know your brother, your mother and your father as people you want to help keep your keys, yeah. something like that, isn't it? Yeah, it's like trusted community leaders or something, and they have your coins under multi-six you can spend your money you can uh, send messages you can talk within the communities that you're in and it might be say you know someone at your school and the local fireman and your mum when your dad or something but if there's there's no sort of ownership on you having to look after your keys at home and i know this goes a lot against the bitcoin ethos of like self-sovereignty and stuff but the idea came from a guy that ran an exchange for seven or eight years you know Obi ran CoinFloor and then which then became Coin Corner because Coin Corner bought it out. And these these solutions, he's he spent a lot of time thinking about them and a lot of time implementing them. And there's already been huge uptick from them. And I think that will get us closer to seeing, you know, a billion people adopt Bitcoin. So that's that one thing that will absolutely take off in Africa. And I'm really excited about because in Africa there's so many horrible colonial currencies that are basically like slavery currencies that need to be gotten rid of. And I, I see Bitcoin as a way of getting out of that. The other thing is um, mining and what that means for energy sovereignty and energy security in Africa, because a lot of the projects or a lot of projects in Africa generally tend to be white elephants, you know, like a huge amount of money gets injected into, say, you know, Burkina Faso or, you know, Togo. And suddenly a government is like, oh, God, we need to make use of this money straight away. So let's build the world's biggest cathedral and let's build, you know, this giant cocoa plantation and then, you know, other little bits and pieces. And in 10 years, they're left empty. I mean, I saw a lot of these white projects while living in um, Africa. There's, there's a place called Yamasukro, um, which was the former capital of the Ivory Coast. And there, there's the world's biggest uh, uh, basilisk. Basilisk? Wait, which, what's the snake in Harry Potter? basilisk fang is like the thing in Chamber of Secrets. <laughs> no, I was going to say, which one's the uh, parcel tongue thing? At the, you know, the... <laughs> which one's... Basilic? What's it called? <laughs> basilic. What, what actually is it? Uh, let, let me... <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> Currently embarrassing himself in a podcast. Great. Um, Yamasuka Cathedral. Basilica. Oh my God, Basilica. I was so out. <laughs> Basilisk. 
<laughs> yeah, this guy's a journalist. Ooh, trust him. <laughs> oh, shit. Basilica of Our Lady of Peace. Um, I think it's the, the biggest basilica in the world. Um, and I went there and there's no one visiting it. You like most cathedrals in most places around the world. Um, there's flocks of tourists taking pictures mm. there. We drove up there on a scooter, parked up, and just ended up like, I don't know, sort of playing around, like shouting at each other, doing like echo and stuff across these huge, like monumental it's just halls. Deserted. It's completely deserted. deserted, yeah. And there were five lane roadways, like five lane uh, motorways. And, uh, you know, there'd be like one car going on like one of the lanes because, you know, they, they got given all this money on this aid or they discovered all this resource. I'm like, okay, where do we inject it straight away to make use of it? And I think that um, uh, this is in relation to energy security because sometimes they'll make like a huge dam, for example, which will supply energy to like, you know, a thousand homes. When in reality, it would be so much cooler if they could do lots of smaller projects and electrify more and more uh, areas or villages or whatever, and do that with something like Bitcoin, which makes those um, projects a bit more feasible. Because obviously if you've got an energy source that's untapped and you've got people that want that energy source, then initially it's like, oh, we need to bid for that. How are we going to get the funding for it? But if you've got that energy source as well as Bitcoin mining, then suddenly the whole project becomes a lot more profitable and getting that project uh, greenlit is a lot easier. So I think that's another thing that in Africa will absolutely explode. But you've also got huge barriers, which are education, um, because, I mean, who is using, who, who is learning about Bitcoin in, I don't know, Cameroon, in the local language, local dialect, you know, they, they probably don't speak very good French, despite it being the local language, they don't, definitely don't speak English. And so what Bitcoin resources are there in the actual local language? And there, there's what, 20,000 languages across Africa? Mm. I mean, in at the Senegal conference I was at recently, the um, most of the talks were in Wolof, which is the local language. And I was so pleased to see this. And they had so much better attendance than the talks that were in French, or my talks, unfortunately, which were in English. Um, but wasn't that great to see, you know, because that shows that there's a clear need for these uh, educational tools or just resources in those local languages. Um, so, yeah, that's a barrier. And then on top of that, the other barrier is um, infinite internet infrastructure generally. Like, yes, you can send SATs over SMS services, um, thanks to Machankura, you know, the South African um, sort of innovation, uh, where you can basically text people Bitcoin. But mm. um, there still needs to be better internet um if not for all of the africans using uh, bitcoin um then just for me because when i do videos sometimes i'm like oh i'll send you some sats and then like it becomes 2g internet and it doesn't quite kick in and i'm there like i promise you the lightning network is instant and they're like no it's not mate. Like, <laughs> this is the slowest thing uh, so yeah it's, so i think that yeah it's good to frame the the news that's been coming out of africa you know jack dorsey was there jack mallers was there and there's loads of announcements from afro bitcoin at the ghana conference but in reality you, you talk to the the average african about bitcoin and they probably think it's a scam or they probably think it's a ponzi scheme or, or whatever it is because the infiltration of scams and things in africa is so much more uh, prolific than we experienced in in the western world so yeah that, that's probably the third barrier isn't it you know there's a lot of issues with that i'm sorry i rambled on there a bit didn't i no not at all <laughs> um, you had um a lot of a lot of interesting points i mean to kind of go through all that like the not your keys not your coins thing i know it's like oh everyone like has to kind of do this but like it is a pain um like it, it is just inconvenient and there is always like i'm still trying to work out what's the best security way of actually storing your keys so mm -hmm. obviously you can have multi-sig 
And so then do you use something like Casa um, and kind of try and spread out the locations? Because like, even if you have like a bunch of things, if someone comes to your house, they're like, give me your Bitcoin. Um, and it's still possible for them. It's like you've done all that work and someone can still steal, potentially steal your Bitcoin. Uh, and so I think, yeah, if you can entrust more of a community or people you, yeah, people you trust to kind of spread out and decentralize the security for your coins. Um, yeah, super cool idea. Nice way of looking at it, decentralizing the security of your coins. And yeah, I just think that, you know, we can't, we can barely expect people to look after their passwords to get into their email addresses or their keys to their homes or whatever it is. So I know that people say, oh, it's only 12 words. You just got to remember it or whatever. But I mean, I, I've woken up lots of evenings in a sweat and been like, oh my God, shit. Like, wh where's my C phrase? Or like, you know, oh my God, have I like dropped my trezor somewhere or whatever it might be? And yeah, it's, uh, I mean, now I'm completely used to it, but it's been a few years of that and, you know, the inevitable stresses. And I know that even like when my brother, I got him a, a ledger for Christmas two years ago. Mm. I was like, you know, take your Bitcoin off whatever exchange you're keeping it on. And he's a really smart, smart guy, you know, he, was, he went to Cambridge University and like really bright, like he consults for the government. And he was, you know, shitting his pants about using, a, you know, sorting out a seed phrase. And so I was you know, how are we going to get everyone in the world to take custody of their keys? Um, it's a big question. And I think having more and more solutions, which aren't quite as, um, I don't want to say difficult, because I know it's not difficult, but you know what I mean? It's like that stress factor. Inconvenient. Factor. Yeah, inconvenient. Yeah. Um, I know that people are like, oh, it's because you've been conditioned by the fiat mindset and the fiat money of not having, you know, accountability for your actions. Um, but it's just stressful, isn't it? You know, I mean, a lot of people I know just put their seed phrase on a metal plate and bury it in their garden. And I think that's probably the best way of, you know, getting peace of mind. Um, mm. I, I personally use multi-sig because I know that I'm probably gonna lose something at some point because I'm always losing stuff. Um, and then the next question is inheritance. What do you do for that? And I recently learned that splitting up your seed phrase and giving it to various family members is not a good thing because apparently if you've got a few of the words of a seed phrase and you can brute force the seed phrase. So I quickly had to re, re, re take back my seed phrase from family members. Um, apparently the best thing to do or one of the best things to do, because there is no best way of doing things in Bitcoin because you've got to not trust verify and do it all yourself is that um, you, you know, use a kill switch. I oh, no, sorry, a, a dead man switch, a kill switch is something else, you know, where you, you, um, have an email set up that every six months, if you don't reply to that email or whatever, then it, it sends out instructions of how to access your Bitcoin. Mm, yeah. That's smart. Yeah. yeah I hadn't, haven't come across that. Obviously um, I haven't set it up, but I just, uh, <laughs> nice idea. I mean, it kind of comes back. I think safety in, in the fiat standards, he does go on about it's completely unrealistic that one, everyone's going to self custody Two, everyone's going to use the base layer Bitcoin chain. Like realistically, once again, it's this layers kind of thing and it depends. Mm. It's more just choosing someone to entrust with the security mm. so that you can get on with your life. Like I trust Chrome a fair amount. Like I know there's certain privacy issues, but it's quite simply easy to just mm. use your Google account to log into things. You don't have to think about things and con constantly kind of reset passwords. Um, okay. So then coming back to so going on a bit of a tangent. <laughs> um, so. I kind of want to come on to the Lightning Network now because you, I don't, I don't, I don't think I know anyone who uses it more than you. <laughs> do use it a lot, actually. <clears throat> you do use it a lot. Um, <laughs> however, you still see a lot of criticism surrounding it. Mm. Um, let's just say Eric Wolf or someone will always post something and be like, "Oh, I just got this new phone. 
trying to set up a lightning wallet but like it just doesn't work we can't do it like am i the only one kind of thing yeah, yeah. and and there's also the things that like some people will say that the apps like i think one person was saying that mun which is a lightning wallet doesn't actually use lightning yet to send the lightning um so i kind of what are your thoughts on how true some of those criticisms are and what are the biggest shortfalls yeah i mean yeah i I mean i think that lightning network isn't where it needs to be um first up and while i use it the whole time and i think it's bloody great it has got issues and there's a lot of people working really hard on resolving those issues and there's some really fucking bright people coming into the space because of the lightning network so i think it even has sort of secondary or ulterior sort of positive consequences of being introduced to the bitcoin system I mean, take people like um, Carle BTC. Uh, he did, recently did an AMA on Stacker News where he talked about the Lightning Network. And he wasn't really into Bitcoin before Lightning because there's also the fact that you can build on Lightning and, you know, make uh, apps or, I guess, dApps in a way, um, like LNBits or uh, other uh, Bolt sort of friendly uh, systems that you can use and build on. I'm not a d- developer and I think it probably shows right now. Um, but uh, or... well, There's a lot of these cool little things like Keat is another one like whole like whole punch that's that's, that's completely different though that's um is that completely different that's just peer-to-peer yeah i mean ah. we could be having this i actually use key quite a lot now and it's actually really good it's, it's better quality yeah i use it occasionally as well but i wasn't sure because it kind of met i think it mentions lightning somewhere and i was like how, how does this actually work oh um, right i don't know that would be a cool integration though um but yeah that's just peer-to-peer so like we basically become our own zion server. justin justin resvani Oh, I saw the video of that yesterday. Um, I, I don't know what's really going on with it. But yeah, as, you, as, as we've pointed out, there's a lot of stuff going on because of Lightning. Um, so I think we're just scratching the surface with payments, which is like my favorite thing to do with it. You know, just send money around the world, uh, demo that it works the whole time. With Eric Wall, and it's funny you bring him up because I actually I bumped into him in Switzerland recently. And I, Did was you? Like, I was like, mate, I know you love to slam the Lightning Network. So let me just buy you lunch over Lightning. And I did in, uh, I bought him a pizza over lightning. Um, sorry, someone's calling me. Um, and uh, uh, obviously when I, whenever you do a demonstration and whenever you want to make a point with Bitcoin, it will rug you in some way. Yeah. So, so I, you know, I scanned the, the invoice and I sent it and it, that thing of saying payment is, payment is in transit, uh, meaning, you know, the, that's sent behind the scenes somewhere, but they didn't get the notification and you didn't get the notification. And then like, you know, 30 seconds later it actually arrived. And I was like, for fuck's sake, you know, this is just typical from um, the lightning network, whatever it is. I think there's a lot of issues with wallets themselves. Uh, for example, blue wallet, you know, over a certain amount, it charges you 1%, uh, which is extortionate. You know, that's the same mm. as Visa or MasterCard. And I found that out the hard way recently when I sent a payment of like $150 and paid over $1.50 in fees. Um, so there's lots of sort of UX issues that definitely definitely could be ironed out. There's lots of sort of liquid, liquidity challenges, which which are like great big maths problems, which a lot of these developers like to dig into, which could also be ironed out. But I think the fact that you've already got 5,000 Bitcoin locked up in liquidity and you've got people like me who are obsessing over it and they're using it the whole time. And I always think that, you know, when I'm doing something, there's got to be a thousand of me out there who are also doing similar things or, or more. Um, so I think, yeah, it's... It's still quite early, but yeah, I, I would have liked to see the Lightning Network be a bit further on and people be using it more. But it's also swimming against like the strongest current, which is the fact that Bitcoin is super volatile and the Lightning Network is initially supposed to be like this payments network. And who is realistically paying for stuff with Bitcoin? It must be like 0.01% of the total users. Mm-hmm. Like, who, who is actually using 
you know, services like BitRefill over Lightning or, um, you know, paying for their phone credit over Lightning or, you know, paying for their lunch over Lightning like, like I am and doing these sorts of things. So I think, yeah, it's it should get criticism and it needs more good criticism. But a lot of the usual critics are just like lazy, sort of half-assed, oh, the UX is a bit rubbish. It's like, well, I'm glad you flagged that, but mm. it's not the Lightning Network that's at fault there. That's, you know, the developer of the app. And I mean, I... I detailed a lot of these things inadvertently while I was in El Salvador because I was using various wallet apps and I found that people were commenting on the videos that I uploaded saying, huh, I didn't realize you didn't, you couldn't see that. Um, I mean, a really big, like flagrant example is Strike. So Strike's app, which I don't actually have because uh, it's, it's mostly for US or Latin American people. They, um, their app is hard coded into dark mode. I think that's fascinating because you're trying to use an app that's in dark mode in really, really sunny places like El Salvador, Guatemala. And on top of this, like El Salvador, Guatemala, like a lot of them, a lot of the people that live there are farmers. And so they will be, um, you know, and their central heating or their way of cooking will be a, a, an open fire in like a house. And so inevitably there's a lot of smoke that comes off this fire and they go to sleep in these rooms. And so their eyesight tends to be really quite crappy, but particularly towards the end of their lives because just, you know, their eyes just deteriorate because of the smoke. So you've got farmers using this app, which is hard coded to be dark in a really bright country, you know, with the sun shining quite intensely and they've got bad eyesight. You know, clearly the developers have not at all thought about what it must mean to be a Salvadorian farmer when they were coding up this app. So there's a lot of these sort of UX issues where they should have made it brighter, they should have made it easier to use, less text, more emojis, more numbers, sorry, not numbers, being a more like buy is like a giant, you know, bright green button and, you know, exchange is like a giant orange one or whatever it is, just to make it so that, okay, what is the user in this country? What is their actual lived experience and how can we make it easier to transact with? So there's, you know, a, a load of stuff going on here but inevitably in the Bitcoin space, you've got a lot of sort of um, Westerners approaching this, these problems um, for solutions that will inevitably be used in the um, developing world. Well, I think what I just said there was quite uh, was quite meaningful. Uh, oh yeah, no, that was that was actually that was really interesting because uh, I mean, also like the kind of the kind of people that Bitcoin a lot of people track, especially to developer side, are like fairly geeky, super techy, and like all the people I know who really love coding and this kind of thing, they're obsessed with dark mode. Like yeah. they just love dark mode. They love dark mode on dark everything. Mode like, first thing they're like, oh, like how can I, how can I turn this into dark mode? And then apart from that, it's also like, oh, this is cool. How can I add this kind of thing? Yeah. So it's like, it's always like adding cool features. Like, oh mate, look at this button. Like if I do this, like it will spin around or something. Yeah. And yeah, I feel like sometimes it's probably quite easy to get sidetracked and be like, what is actually the easiest thing that you can possibly use? Yeah. And that's obviously like light mode in somewhere that's sunny. And mm. that's the other thing as well. I was like, I want to be able to give, I want to recommend an app to someone where it's literally just like, oh, send your money in, big button buy, big button sell, or big button send. And that's yeah. like all you have. Because at the end, or like maybe just DCA, um, and probably not DCA because that's also another um, a term that some people might not understand, but something like, like buy every month. Yeah. And like kind of super, super simple. And I'm sure it'll come. Um, out of curiosity, did you manage to speak to Jack or mention that at all to him? Jack Dorsey or Mallers? Or... Uh, Mallers. Uh, I'm actually speaking to him on Friday night. Um, so I will be, you know, get my guns out and be ready to... So <laughs> Why, dark mode? Mode? Why are you a dark mode maxi, Jack? I've not actually met him before because I, I didn't go to the Ghana conference. I, I couldn't afford to get across there. It's so expensive to fly in, um, like, into Africa. 
and also I'm a poor journalist, so you know. <laughs> because you're sending everyone your Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's probably why. I've started to remedy that. I've literally started begging on Twitter, and I found that that does actually replenish a lot of the Bitcoin that I give out. But when I think about like Senegal, literally, I must have given out like I, I must have set set up at least eighty people with wallets. And every person wow. I set, set up with a wallet with, initially I was giving out $10. And then Paco was like, mate, you need to calm down. Like, <laughs> So I started giving out like $1 or $2 after that. But still, it like adds up. And yeah, but it's it's fun. And how else do we get adoption? And I, and I can't code. So how else am I going to contribute to this um, ecosystem? Hmm. That kind of, that brings me on lovely to one of my kind of final questions is obviously, you learn about this tech, you're like, whoa, it's super cool. I want to kind of drive adoption. So kind of ranking levels at which your average Joe can kind of help contribute and drive adoption, like from beginner, intermediate to hard, what are some of the best ways do you think someone can go about that? Oh, cool. Yeah, it's so personal and it's so specific for every person around the world. You know, they'll all have different touch points, different understandings of what money is, what they're doing with their money. They might even hate bringing up the word money. So Bitcoin is anything to anyone and everything to everyone as well. <laughs> That's kind of weird. But um, I think that, yeah, if I'm trying to introduce someone to Bitcoin, then I'll try to do it in a way that's applicable to them. For example, if it's, you know, uh, my uncle, who's in his 60s, or if it's someone that remembers the gold standard, then maybe you can talk about that. But if it's just, you know, or if it's a teenager, then why didn't you introduce them or try them um, a game of Bitcoin Bounce or Bitcoin Snake and be like, by the way, when I was your age, I was playing Snake and now I can earn sats from playing Snake. And they're like, what are sats? And like, oh, it's this in-game token, which, by the way, is also the best money known to mankind. And, you know, you go from from there. So I think it's it's a real, I mean, for kids, you know, read them Bitcoin books, for example. There's loads of um, really nice Bitcoin stories out there now, like, you know, Goodnight Bitcoin or um, uh, the Shamari books. Uh, there's there's even Bitcoin games. So I think it's just a question of getting your touch point across there. I mean, like my girlfriend, for example, terrible with numbers. I generally think that there is like a maths dyslexia thing out there. Mm -hmm. and, um, this is not me being, me being mean at all. She like she just does not get numbers, and uh, but she gets Bitcoin on a sort of uh, fiat versus Bitcoin understanding and understanding that there's a supply cap and you know that the number goes up eventually over time and you know these sorts of things and understands as well that you know the Lightning Network works way better than a PayPal or a Visa or a Mastercard. So it's you know no, no one is gonna. I mean I can't get past page five of the white paper because I just am like, okay, this is now in Chinese to me. And, you know, it's just, that's just how it is. Um, so I think it's just understanding what those touch points are for that, that specific person you're talking to and just trying to be like, okay, what are they going through right now? And why, what might Bitcoin fix for them? And always, always send them some sats, you know, download Wallet of Satoshi or Moon or whatever your Lightning wallet is and, and send it across. Um, and then with regards to what can people do to contribute to the space, I heard someone recently say, do whatever you're doing in the world right now and put Bitcoin on top. And I thought that was really good advice um, because that's kind of what I did. You know, I was a journal, I was like a researcher, reporter, journalist sort of thing. And I've just started doing the same thing, but in Bitcoin and through doing it in a space that I really love and I really want to contribute to, it's become more of a mission-based activity. So my quality of life has gone up because I'm happier. And also um, I'm also way busier, which kind of like sucks a bit, but whatever. Um, <laughs> But I also, yeah, I get a lot more out of what I do. So, yeah, if you are like orange pilled or whatever term you want to use, 
um, then think about yeah what you're doing now and just be like okay well maybe I can do that in the Bitcoin space because we are building a whole new economy here and because it's a brand new Bitcoin economy we need all the jobs we had in fiat but just mm. you know Bitcoinized and there's definitely space for you and lots of companies are hiring so go on bitcoinerjobs.com and uh, and have a browse around and if not just send out um, feelers on email or te- or Twitter or go to conferences and just hang out with some of these people because if you are experiencing those sort of Bitcoiner thoughts that a lot of us go down, like those rabbit holes, then you're undoubtedly going to, um, uh, what's the word, gel with these people on their level as well. I mean, a lot of people, I mean, Knut Svanholm, for example, talks about the fact that when you meet with Bitcoiners, you instantly hit it off because you just go straight from small talk to being like, you know, talking about um, long poles and spears. Or how cars are great. <laughs> Bitcoin adoption. So yeah, get stuck in, get involved, and you know life is short, and Bitcoin's fun. Come have fun. Mm. No, I mean amazing, amazing advice, and I think it is. It's a it's a nice way of looking at it. It's just transfer your skills over. If you're, I mean, certain skills are easier than others, but even if you're, as you know, you sell. My dad's a potter. I let you sell pots. You can just be like, oh, by the way, I accept Bitcoin or something. Or little things like that. Or I mean, I love start like making, start, yeah, or start, um, I mean, I'm sure I would probably want a Bitcoin, like a handle on a mug that had a B on it. Like you can easily that. do like some Bitcoin themed pottery and that would sell so well at any Bitcoin conference ever. And it's always like the perfect gift for it. I still need to drink out of a mug. And you saw at the start of this interview, my mug was too hot to hold. Well, your dad, not orange. Yeah, yeah, it's not even orange. There you go. You can, dad can make Bitcoin themed pottery. I, I mean, I, oh, so that is a tankard. That's not even a mug. Yeah, no, it literally says like <laughs> beer festival on the front. <laughs> uh, okay, so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I've got about, I've got two questions left, um, and so the kind of the first one's kind of like you've obviously life is short. You've thrown yourself at Bitcoin. What do you think your purpose is or do you think about what would happen if, say, super hypothetical, Bitcoin doesn't live up to what it is? It feels like, oh, no, something in the code was like built in so that it like turned off next year. Yeah. Where where do you feel like that leaves you? Like, is that something you ever worry about? Um, uh, yeah, I used to a lot, actually. And I was worried that, you know, I was making Bitcoin too much my identity and all this sort of thing. And I was like, there's a difference between because, you know, people go down the cult vibe a lot. Um, mm. so initially I was like, well, I'll just have to kill myself. That's the, that's the easiest way out. Like, there's, a, <laughs> there's, there's a bug in the code. Well, I'll just top myself. There we go. Uh, sorted. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot more to my life than Bitcoin. It's just this thing that I'm, you know, have a healthy obsession for. And I think it's good to have healthy obsessions in life. It, it does make life a bit more colorful and interesting. Um, the first person to hold my hands up and realize, okay, yeah, I am a bit obsessed about this thing. What happens if there is an issue with it? Well, I've learned so much from it already and it's humbled me. It's uh, changed me because, you know, Bitcoin, you can't change Bitcoin. Bitcoin changes you. Um, that I've already taken a lot from it, which I'm very grateful for. So I hope that I would take that energy and put it into other aspects of my life. Um, with regards to, if the, I mean, going back to like a fiat life would kind of suck because it, it, there is that sense of hope and that sense of gravitating towards a better future through Bitcoin. So I would really hope that we would create a new one or Satoshi would come back or there might be some sort of better money because 
I think fix the money, fix the world is quite true. And I think that we would have a more sort of fairer, equitable world under a Bitcoin standard. But yeah, it would be, it would be pretty tough. And that would be the biggest, you know, pill to swallow. They say that, you know, the mm. toughest pill to no, swallow. Is and, but I guess it comes back to like your first point of transferring skills. Like the worst case is you've learned, you're not getting rid of your skills. If anything, you're sharpening them, you're learning more skills. Your skills are probably getting better because you're having to sell a new currency, which most of the world doesn't care about or want. <laughs> Yeah. And so if you went back to the field, it would probably be quite easy because yeah. selling anything after that or explaining anything would be a lot easier. And um, I've become yeah, the biggest kind of... Cardano shell, you know, just yeah, like, <laughs> Charles Hoskinson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, and so kind of finally, coming back to like, you you work for Cointelegraph. Yes, sir. Um, and I know sometimes you get some stick because of that. Well, you did recently add a, what, what conference was it? Yeah, adopting Bitcoin in El Salvador, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that. And so, how, one, how do you deal with that? But two, but what's the, like, what's the feel at Cointelegraph? Like, I don't know if there's, like, a Cointelegraph office or, like, somewhere you guys exist. Like, decentralized. What are your, <laughs> your colleagues who also work there, are they all of a similar mentality to you? Um, or, like, how much of a disparity is it? And, like, do you guys all just be like, oh, we obviously have super different opinions, but you still kind of like hang out or do things together? Or is it you kind of just work on your own thing? I mean, I, yeah, I, I mostly work on my own thing and that comes pretty, that comes across in my work. And I, and I really respect that they give me that autonomy and they give me that freedom to focus on my own sort of beat. And my beat is definitely a Bitcoin beat. I mean, I thought that I'd kept this under wraps and that they, I hadn't sort of shown my, crypto leaning towards Bitcoin um, until the editor in chief wished me happy birthday on Monday. And she was like, happy birthday to our in-house Bitcoin Optimus Maximus. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, oh shit, <laughs> cat's out the bag there. <laughs> and you know, they, they, they've seen my Twitter and they tag me and stuff on Twitter as well. And it, it doesn't take a genius to realize that I'm not gonna be writing about Ethereum anytime soon. And I'll only write about Ethereum um, if it's in the interest of Bitcoin. So like, you know, moving from proof of work to proof of stake, I think super interesting. And I think it's one of those reasons why Bitcoin will survive and Ethereum won't because proof of stake is just, you know, Fiat 2.0. You give lots of people an unfair advantage and that's what they're, and that's where the system gets abused and that ultimately leads to more and more centralization. Whereas Bitcoin, as we know, is becoming more and more decentralized. Um, but within Cointelegraph itself, you know, there's, I think I must be one of the only maxis. Um, I think I've got a, a suspicions about a couple of the guys on the American team who are pretty like wise and really informed when it comes to traditional markets and crypto and Bitcoin markets. Uh, so I, I relate to a lot of what they say in their style of reporting, but I've been the one that's probably the more vocal with regards to like my uh, views on, on crypto and they, they don't seem to mind it. And I think if I was them and I was looking at managing Joe and being like, okay, you've got this reporter here that only wants to write about Bitcoin or at least shows that he only wants to write about Bitcoin. How do we handle that? Well, there's no one else that's doing that. And he seems to be doing quite a good job of it. So maybe we should just, you know, let him keep doing that. And mm. it's it certainly shows Cointelegraph to have a Bitcoin Telegraph side to it as well as a shitcoin Telegraph side to it. So I think that must be, well, this is hugely, you know, uh, I'm praising my own work here, but <laughs> it's, I, I would see that as being a useful tool. Like I would love it if, you know, if I was the manager, the, the CEO of Cointelegraph, whatever, I'd be like, okay, I also want an Ethereum specialist. I want a Polygon specialist, I want a Matic specialist, whatever it is because that's their beat, you know, they want to write about shit coins and that's, that's absolutely fine. And they're, they're running a business based off of that. Um, because yeah, I don't think there are any other like sort of Bitcoin minimalists like me in the, in the team. Um, but also like kudos to them for letting them, 
letting me write about it and letting me be quite obvious with my uh, framing of things. You know, I've got headlines on Cointelegraph like shit coins are garbage or, uh, you know, I, I try to keep up with all the Bitcoin developments and make sure they get out to the Cointelegraph audience because, you know, I'm hoping that along the way I'm helping people be educated or informed or entertained about uh, Bitcoin and what's going on in that space. So, yeah, mm. kudos to them. Um, and no, also they've managed the, to keep their treasury under check across the bear market. So, you know, props for that as well. well because done. a lot of crypto media companies have had a really bad bear market. Well, yeah, it's kind of, I think it's Warren Buffett when he first took over Berkshire. They were a textiles company, I believe. Really? And that was like something like that. I, I, was, I was been reading his um, shareholder letters, but basically it was super cyclical super volatile and you basically just had to accept the fact that for large portions of the year or sometimes a whole year you're just not going to make any money you're going to be at a loss and you just have to focus on losing as little as you can and then certain years it will come back into trend you make loads of money which is in the end why he then started branching out to investing the treasury and also taking on insurance companies because he wanted oh, wow. to wait to move this out um but yeah it's difficult it's difficult being any sort of bitcoin or crypto company because you've got to keep a cool head and not pay loads of money to put your name on stadiums <laughs> and then try and think maybe I'll save this, save a little bit of this up maybe. Um, so that when it comes up, which I think Kraken does that quite well, to be fair. Um, mm. They seem to not really push it, hold money back and then, um, which they can, can use to live off during, I guess, the more wintry periods. Mm. Um, and so last, last question, you are, you've got a focus for Bitcoin and not much else as, as is quite evident. And so what, what gives you that focus and what is your run, run your average person through your, your thinking as to how you've got to where you are? Uh, so it's like, there's a practical approach to it. Um, which is that I want to become a specialist in an area. And I feel like Bitcoin is that area that will outlive us and, you know, out, you know, it'll be here in a hundred years. Um, there's also sort of an ethical, uh, approach to it because I work for a couple, I've worked for a few crypto companies now. And I remember being at Dap Radar, which is like a you know Web three sort of business, and I came to work one day, and they're saying, "Oh, have you done that project yet on whatever shitcoin it was?" And I was like, "No, I haven't quite finished." And he was like, "Oh, it's funny. I, I thought they would have rugged you by now." And I was like, "Oh, I don't really want to put my name on this anymore. I don't want to associate myself with any sort of company that could be a rug at some point because I don't want that feeling of going to work and being responsible for someone losing money in some shape or form, and I want to be part of that." So, so yeah, I want to be part of that sort of change towards self-custody and all that sort of thing. So I won't, I, I even try to steer clear of writing about Nexo or BlockFi or whatever, because I just don't want to appear to be supporting those sorts of things. Because I think, yeah, integrity and uh, reputation is really, really important to build up and very easy to lose as we, we see every, you know, couple of months in the, in the crypto sphere. And uh, the other part of it was, um, I think that Bitcoin was like a zero to one moment in that, you know, we discovered or Satoshi innovated or discovered digital scarcity. And once you've got that digital scarcity, it's very hard to then replicate that digital scarcity elsewhere. And well, then there's another part of it, which is what I mentioned earlier, which is that, you know, I think that every other chain is becoming more centralized and like try to make it out like they were decentralized and then is becoming, uh... man, I can actually go on about this all day. I think there's lots of reasons why I only care about Bitcoin. But initially, it was just sort of practical reasons. I mean, even like when you look at Ethereum and the fact that there's a pre-mine and people that, and they, they claim, I mean, Joseph Lubin, Lubin is going around claiming that uh, 
when they listed the first ETH tokens, there was no sense of it being worth anything and there was no speculation about it. But in talks in 2014, he's literally saying whales should make private their disclosures of purchases of ETH because they wouldn't want to ch um, you know, change the market too much. And, this, and he mentions the word like speculation in it as well. So I think the whole thing was quite you know, dishonest and they knew that they were going to make a lot of money from it. Whereas Bitcoin for the first six months of his existence, Satoshi didn't know if it was going to be worth anything. You know, he was ridiculed to some extent by the cypherpunk emailing list and people thought this is never going to work. You know, Digicash didn't work, Hashcash didn't work, eGold didn't work. So why would Bitcoin work? And because it had this sort of amazing sort of conception or immaculate conception, as some people like to say, um, it really does put it a complete like, head and shoulders above any of the, these other crypto projects. So I think, you know, if you're coming into the space and sort of learning about it for the first time, like start with Bitcoin at the very least. Okay, go and get rugged by other projects. We all get rugged. It's, it's fine. It's going to happen. Um, but I think you'll end up coming back to Bitcoin. And also when you see all the cool stuff that's happening in the Bitcoin space and you meet Bitcoiners in real life and realize that they, you know, they're thinking about their kids already and they've got a lot of you know, wisdom about them. And then I compare that to my experience at crypto conferences when everyone just wants to sell stuff right now to you and get like, you know, advertisement or marketing, whatever it is. It's a really different uh, atmosphere. I'm not saying like Bitcoin is a purist, like there's loads of terrible Bitcoiners out there. It's for everyone after all. But um, I just think that has a lot of ingredients to be this, you know, real fundamental change to human existence. And yeah, I, I approach it through through lots of sort of different hoops. But again, I'm not like a Bitcoin maximalist because I don't really like that term. I'd call myself more of like a Bitcoin minimalist. I like, you know, I've got that in my life and it's, it's enough and it's all encompassing and I don't need to look at other things in as much detail, let's say. Um, but I've tried to build dApps on Ethereum. I've tried to uh, mine Doge. I've tried to, um, I've used lots of weird sort of CeFi and DeFi platforms. I'm still going to tinker with these things, but ultimately I wouldn't want to be paid in whatever shitcoin, you, you know, and also when these tokens are being created, there's some sort of unfairness that's always created there. There's someone that's being, uh, is benefiting unfairly. And I don't want to be part of that system and I don't want my name to be um, associated with that, with that system either. So yeah, so that's a really roundabout way of um, approaching that question. I don't really have like a big sort of Saifedine, Amoose, like, bam, shit coins are going to poison everyone sort of thing. No, I like that. It's very eloquently put. It's clearly something you've put a lot of thought into and it's not just something that you've decided on a whim. Um, and I think also, I mean, safety has his way with words as well, but I think what you said is also quite, um, quite relatable to your average person. Also, I think the idea of it just wanting to be your focus as well makes a lot of sense. Like there are other areas which certain people are really excited about and that can become your focus, but mm. this is kind of more just why you've chosen your one. Um, so yeah, thank you. Mm. So Joe, um, where can people hear you? chat more, shit, shit post, talk more wisdom, all this, all this mixed into one. Where can we hear more of it? Uh, thanks, mate. I know it's lovely to chat to you and hang out. And I'm very much looking forward to the blockchain of Barn um, in, is it May? Mark, May? Yeah, no, May. May. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so they can obviously catch me there. Um, <laughs> chill. And that aside, uh, my Twitter's at Joe Nakamoto. Um, Nakamoto of Satoshi, of course because we are all Satoshi. And my email address is joseph.hall at cointelegraph.com. If you want to like, send me a story or we can chat about something, then I'm there. And yeah, emails are open. DMs are open on Twitter as well. 
always happy to chat about Bitcoin in particular. Um, and yeah, hope people take something away from this. Very happy you had me on Tats and uh, it was really nice to chat to you. But I've got about 10 minutes of sunlight right now and I haven't been outside and the, the waves are currently pumping from where I'm sat. So I'm desperate to get in the sea. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll, last question. How much time do you spend on Twitter? Because <laughs> per day? Mate, I mean, Sundays, zero, because I don't go on any internet or anything. I turn my phone you're on immense. Like, I respect it yeah. so much, but I'm always like, oh, my God, like, Joe is, Joe is bossing, <laughs> bossing this platform right now. <laughs> yeah, it's been a few days. Been, yeah, my notifications are just, I mean, even just during this call, I've had 40 notifications. I just can't. It's, it's horrible. I thought it'd be useful to have a Twitter profile for my job, and it opens up doors, which is true. But at the same time, it becomes a job in of itself. And I mm. think people don't well, realize leverage, how much. Especially once you've got to the following you have. I mean, it's kind of a rolling snowball, which you can yeah. use to direct wherever you want later on. Yeah. I mean, on a, and then also on an average day, I mean, I'm a journalist. Journalists usually use Twitter for stories the whole time. So there's also that really bad sort of incentive to it as well. So I probably mm. say about four hours a day, but maybe six. It's bad. It's always right. open on my computer, put it that way. <laughs> That's immense. <laughs> All right, King of Twitter. It's been, Don't um... try this at home. Don't try this at home. <laughs> Don't go into pickup. Yeah, that too. Don't. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's been a yeah, absolute, absolute pleasure talking to you. And um, I'll let you go catch some waves. Thanks, mate. Yes. You too, Tats. Um, catch you soon in the UK. Uh, and yeah, all the best with the pod. And let me know how I can help out with um, the, the blockchain in the barn and, and anything else, really. Yeah. You know where to find me. Nice. Absolute pleasure. Um, yeah, I guess we'll call it that. Um, we'll assume that it's stopped recording now. So last question as well. Any, any also like just quick thoughts as well on my kind of general structure of a podcast or thing that you, like anything that jumped out that you felt like I could have improved um, I, for when I record the next? Can I genuinely think about this while in the sea and then like ring you in half an hour? Literally yeah. the light goes so quickly here and I haven't got outside. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> you can just DM it to me or something. Don't worry. We'll okay. have a chat with or, or I'll call you or something later. But yeah, I know I really need to get outside. Nice. Um, well, you, I think you got my number free signal, so I'll let you go. Sick. Okay. Cheers, mate. Um, nice. really, really enjoyed that and lovely to hang out. Uh, I'll catch okay. you in a bit. Thanks so much to you as well. Good luck with the waves. See you. Cheers, mate. Bye. <laughs> I hope you found that as informative and enjoyable as I did. And I just wanted to drop a quick reminder that we are holding a blockchain retreat in the West of Wales on the 11th to the 14th of May, where you'll find a sauna with a beautiful view of the sea, fresh food, yoga, breath work, and of course, talks, panels, and workshops by truly great speakers all about Bitcoin, blockchain, and crypto. If you are interested, there are only 100 spaces, so please head over to our website at kaushed.org.uk where you can register your interest so that you'll be notified when the remaining 85, 85 tickets are released. That's all and see you guys next week.